Any Lord of the Rings fans in the house? Who's read the books? Proper fans. Oh, yeah, proper fans. More than once? Proper fans. Love it. Who's seen the films? Yeah, more hands. I love the films. First one's one of my favourites. <coughs> in case you're not aware, let me introduce you. That's either Thunder or my digestive system or the PA. Not quite sure. One of the lot. One of the three. If you're not aware, let me introduce you to Gollum and Smeagol. They're the same person. In the story Lord of the Rings, there's this one of the small river folk called Smeagol. He gets hold of the famous ring that becomes the catalyst. It's the MacGuffin of the whole three books. And this is the one ring to rule them all. He gets hold of it. And having held it, it keeps him alive for centuries. He's like 500 years old by this point. But he's turned from a nice-looking, semi-nice-looking river folk to that. He turns into this shriveled-up little creature. It's a brilliant... It was written by Tolkien. He, he's, he, is, uh, he was a Catholic. So he had, it's his representation of what sin does to us. I might use the handset in a minute. It's a representation of what sin does to us. And as he holds onto this ring, he's willing to, not willing to let it go because of its power it gives him. It's, he's precious. He turns into this shriveled up little creature. But all along, Smeagol, see Gollum looks a bit nasty. Smeagol's a little bit nicer. Smeagol's still in the background. He's, he's part of his identity has been torn in two. And this is what I want to describe. I'm talking about the war within today in the second half of Romans chapter 7, about this tussle between them. Because in the middle film, in the two towers, you see this amazing depicted scene where fighting within himself at night, Gollum and Smeagol have a big argument about who's going to win for heart territory, who's going to win the day. There's nicer Smeagol who wants to serve. I'm not going to do the voice. I'm not going to act it out. But they have this amazing fight. Gollum being nasty, Smeagol being a bit nicer, fighting over heart territory, and who's going to win this battle within. It's a fight about sin, basically. It's an amazing scene if you've not seen it. You'll probably find it on YouTube, just that clip. But sometimes we can sense that in ourselves, can't we? Sometimes this struggle within, if you ever sense this kind of me, myself and I kind of situation, where there's me over here going, let's do this, precious. Let's do this. Yeah, that'd be really nice. And there's myself going over here, going, what are you doing? That'd be, no, what? No, we can't do that, can we? No, we go, yeah, but it'd be really, really nice. Come on, it'll be all right. No one will know. He goes, yeah, but everybody will find out. And you're, But all along, there's I over here. It's me, myself, having a fight. There's I looking on going, what's happening? It's almost his third party. You're still a fly on the wall as well. You're going in, does that, anybody? Is it just me who needs to be put away somewhere? Okay, well, it's not just me. Brilliant. This war within us is very real, isn't it? Within us is very real. In this passage, Romans chapter 7, Paul starts piecing this apart, ready for chapter 8. It's an amazing passage that as we gloss through it, we can resonate with it. But as we go deeper, we see there's even greater depths within it. And as a result, it can become quite complicated sometimes. And it's one of the most difficult in the Bible, actually, this passage. It looks a little bit simple on top, but written in Paul's tends to come across like he's writing in riddles. But we get an idea of what he's talking about. The more you dig, the more you realise there's more there. And it's become quite a contested passage over the centuries amongst theologians and preachers and so on. But we need to explore its depth. We can't just skip the difficult passages. This is why sometimes we go through books of the Bible rather than just preach on a topic so we don't avoid the difficult passages. We need to tackle with them. So we're going to explore its depths, ready for two weeks' time, where suddenly we're launched into the glories, the heights of chapter 8. So, Romans chapter 7, the war within. Can we just have the next slide, please, Paul? We'll get rid of Gollum. Bye-bye, Smeagol. There we go. Um, there's just three Cs I want to look at today. I'm no military strategist, 
but I get a sense there's at least three major elements to a war. There's the context, the reason why it's happening. There's always a reason for a war. It doesn't happen for no reason. So there's the context. We'll look at the conflict itself, look at actually what's going on. But then we'll look at the conqueror. Unless there's any form of compromise or negotiation, ultimately one side wins in a war. So just to throw three aspects, I'm sure military experts will tell me there's far more to it than that. But we're going to look at those three. The context, the conflict, and the conqueror. And we're going to read this second half of chapter 7 in three sections that will take us through each of those in turn. So the first one, let's look at the context. We're going to read from verse 7 to verse 12. Now just as it starts, he starts with this question. What then shall we say? If you remember at the beginning of chapter 6, he asked this question. What shall we say? We could continue in sin. And he goes, by no means. There's that Greek word, may. No, 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 no. Don't. And then halfway through chapter, fifth, uh, chapter 6, he asks that question again. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. No, 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 no. And he does it again here. Verse 7 of chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Should we blame that? Again, by no means. No, no, no. Yet... If it had not been for the law, he continues, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's a reason when this war started. There is always a reason for war. It can be a number of things. I'll put them up here. There's, it can be about control. It can be about balance of power that we've seen over the years, even in recent decades, fighting over oil resources and trade routes. There's a, there's a fight for control, balance of power. It can be about expanding territory, trying to seize land. Saw that with the Six-Day War between the 60s and the 80s when Israel invaded the West Bank. It was all about land, wasn't it? It can be about clash of ideologies, a collision of beliefs. Seen that recently in the War, of war on Terror. That's a clash of ideologies. Or it can also be even the Cold War. We've had democracy versus communism. It's a clash of ideologies, a collision of beliefs. It can also be rebellion amongst the citizens from the grassroots. You see it in the French Revolution, the common folk toppling the ruling aristocracy. It's about from the ground up. Lots of different... There are other reasons as well, but they're some of the major ones. War doesn't happen for no reason. There's always something behind it. And the war within our hearts and our minds has its own reason. And Paul is saying here... He's explaining what's at the root of this internal tug of war we can so often recognise going on, going on and scratching our heads and feeling defeated and so on. These early verses, what Paul's doing, he's talking about mankind in the first place. When he says, apart from the law I was alive and then I was, you know, sin killed me, etc., etc. When he's saying I and me, he's actually, it's a corporate language he's using. He's talking about mankind. He's talking about Adam in the first place and humanity ever since. It's a collective, it's a collective noun. But he's referring back to the time, not just him, Paul, but us humans, Adam and Eve at the beginning, when God gave man unhindered fellowship. But as soon as the command appears to obey the one who knows better, this is all yours, just don't do that. Because it's better for you if you don't. 
You'll flourish over here. As soon as that command arrives, what happens? Temptation rears its ugly head. Satan comes along and stirs the embers. And that fire spreads. And Paul here is just affiliating himself in that moment. He's saying, until I heard, don't do that, it's not good for you, I didn't realize I wanted to do it. It's there, isn't it? And he's looking inside himself and he sees he is just as complicit and unable to point the finger away from himself. There is, he's referring back to the history of mankind and what's happened and where it all started. And going, I'm as much a part to play of that as that. I, I can't just point to Adam and go, it's his fault. Remember a few weeks ago, Bob was saying, we can't blame Adam. We're just as complicit. It's in our hearts as well. And from then on, from that moment, through the millennia, through the centuries, through the decades, from then on, mankind has been in conflict with God. We've been jostling for control. We've been jostling for power. We've been fighting for heart territory, wanting to rule the thrones in our hearts more than God. It's been a clash of ideologies, beliefs. I believe I'll be better off if I go and do that, even though you, God, don't want me to. It's a clash of beliefs. It's us citizens in rebellion. It's the same again. You see the reason for war right from the beginning. We have wanted to sit on the thrones of our lives ever since the moment when our first mum and dad contended for the same thing all those eons ago. And we need to realise at no point is Paul blaming the law. Well, we were right until the law turned up, until God's commands turned up. So it's the law's fault. He's not saying that at all. He's just ensuring. See, verse 10, in fact, what does he say? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Its intention is a good thing. He wants us to understand that God's commands are life-giving. The trouble is it's our disposition, our response to it that's deadly. If you tell an infant not to hit another child and they go and do it anyway, is it your request that's the problem or is it the child's heart? It's the child's heart, isn't it? It's not the law that's the problem. It's the response to it. We need to accept the responsibility and the consequence whenever we spurn God's better choices. This is what this is talking about. And while God breathes life through his plans for us, as we've been hearing during worship as well, as God breathes his life through us, through, uh, through his plans for us, promoting our flourishing via safe boundaries. Freedom isn't anything goes. Freedom is within God's safe boundaries. That's where true freedom is found. But instead what we do, we resist his best intentions. Time and time again, don't we? And we, what we're doing, we're cutting off that life source from flowing through us. No, thank you, I know better. Now, if you picture a dam, any kind of dam, even a big hoover dam, up against a, a huge, great source of life, a big source, water source, you put a dam up, you go, no, thank you, I know better. That life source is being blocked up. What's on the other side? Death. Nothing. You get dry valleys, dry bones. It's parched, isn't it? That's what happens in our lives when we say no to God's better choices. And so here we are, the context, that's why we are in the middle of this conflict in the first place. That's why this war is going on. So let's look at the conflict, because the conflict always ends in casualties, doesn't it? Let's carry on reading from verse 13 to verse 20. So Paul continues, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Here he goes again, that word may, the Greek may. By no means, no, no, no. Saying it was sin producing death in me through what was good what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual 
But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. Here we go, Gollum and Smeagol. I, I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Here it is bubbling up. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The battlefield is messy. It's never tidy. There are bodies left in its wake as the result of a collision of two unyielding forces that both say, never retreat, never surrender. There's a collision and a mess as a result. And what Paul's describing here is this frustrating struggle that just can leave you feeling, leave you reeling, leave you feeling confused, hopeless, defeated sometimes. Is that what the Christian life should amount to? No. And yet, who can put their hands up and go, yeah, I recognise this in my life and in my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not what the Christian life should be about. And yet, we've all experienced it many times over, haven't we? So we need to get to the nugget of what this conflict, what's really at stake, what's going on here. What's Paul describing? This is where this passage gets quite contentious sometimes. Um, I've, got, I've got about four, four interpretations. The fourth one is the, is the dynamite. There's four suggested interpretations over the years about what's going on here. Firstly, the first one, I do agree with this, the first one is that it continues where it says I and me is talking about us collectively. It does continue and he's describing that Israel under the Torah, under the law and how they, how they needed to come into grace and what, what that was going on there. There is that sense going on in this passage. We need to recognise that. If you want to read more about that, Tom Wright and Tom Holland are very good in that kind of thing. That's quite helpful. So that is going on, but... There is a personal application, nevertheless, going on here because of what we see in coming up in chapter 8, in the next chapter. We're here over the next few weeks through August into September. So there is the collective, but there is a personal application. So which kind of personal application? Who is he talking about here? Is he describing believer? Is he describing unbeliever? Something in between? What's he doing? Well, secondly, is he talking about an individual before salvation? That's what some have suggested. This isn't the Christian life, surely. So you must be talking about what it's like for someone before they're saved. Well, it can't be that. Because in verse 18, he, Paul talks about what he wants to live for Jesus. Verse 18, he's saying, um, da, 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 I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He wants to do the right thing for God. And that sense of right there is not just some internal moral compass just guessing with a good conscience. This is what is right, knowing what, what's right for Jesus, living for Jesus. So he can't be describing someone before they're saved. Can't, can't be an, un, an unbeliever. Can't be someone who's not following Jesus. So therefore, the obvious next question is, well, is he describing the individual after salvation? Thirdly. Now, that was my understanding for a long, long time. I was a Christian, going about my daily business, and I still recognise this tug of war going inside me. So I go, yep, that's me. He must be describing what it's like to be a Christian, but finding it hard. Until a few years ago, I came to the realisation that's not what he's talking about either. That's quite a defeatist stance. You go, well, if that's what the Christian life's like, I might as well just not fight it. It's just, it's just what happens. Well, try and try and be nice and try and be good sometimes. But I'm going to, oh, well, you put it in your word. I'm going to trip over anyway, so don't worry about it. It's just, that's the expe expectation. We can unconsciously start living like that and just going half-hearted. It's not what it's saying. 
Because particularly in verse 14, how does he describe himself? If, if the, listen, if he's describing what it means to be a believer, strictly, then in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And yet in the previous chapter, we've already heard, he's going, you're not sold under sin, you're not a slave to sin anymore, you're a servant to Jesus now. So he can't just be describing any old believer either. Can't be that. And of course, in the next chapter, chapter 8, as we're going to reach the heights of that, we will get there. You realise that the Christian life is meant to be far more joyful than what's being described here. So is he talking about an unbeliever? No. Is he talking about just any old believer? No. What's he talking about? And this is where I believe the dynamite, the key to this, really brings it alive, opens it up, explodes the problem for us. Probably the most helpful, logical, contextual, honouring and fruitful, in fact, understanding I've discovered is this. This is what works. This is where, this is where the power is at. And this isn't just merely helpful information. Nice to know. This is, like I say, this is dynamite and walking in, in freedom, God's way. He is not describing pre-salvation. He's not describing post-salvation. He's describing the individual who is saved by grace but keeps living under the old mindset of the law, the do's and don'ts. Does that make sense? Let me put it another way. In other words, someone who has accepted they can't be saved by human effort, relying on Jesus' work on the cross, and yet they're trying to live a worthy life in response to that by human effort. It might be ongoing, it might be intermittent, you keep coming back to it, going around in circles, living like that all the time. But here it is. Every time a Christian... You or I, reborn in Jesus. Every time we try to fight sin in our own strength, we find this conflict which will always end in tears. Does that make sense? To ask Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher of last century in London, he, he, said, he said that to ask, is this about the believer or the unbeliever, is missing the point. The point is the danger of seeking a holy life without Holy Spirit's help and strength. Helpfully, Paul puts his finger on a word here that is translated in the ESV as flesh. It's this old, old word called sucks. It's translated as flesh here. You see it in the, in the NIV. You might have different um, Bible translations amongst us. The NIV is a good, good translation. But in there, in this passage, it translates that word as sinful nature. And that's actually quite unhelpful for us as Christians, believing we have a sinful nature. The ESV translates it as flesh, which is a neutral term. To say we have a sinful nature, actually, if you are, if you are saved, if you belong to Jesus, you, now, you are now a new creation. You have a new nature. You don't have a sinful nature. Your tussle is now with the old ways, the flesh. And the word flesh in here is a neutral term. It's just defined by its context. And what it's talking about here is that slave-servant contrast again. It's not talking about, well, you've got a light side and a dark side. There's a little bit of light and dark in all of us. There's a bit of yin and yang, a bit of good and evil in all of us. It's not saying that at all. If you're saved, you are pure, you are righteous, you are being made holy, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You don't have a dark side, but we can keep slipping into the old ways. We can keep slipping into the old mindset and our hearts being tugged by the old desires. Does that make sense? The flesh is a neutral thing, but it's defined by how we're living and what we're stepping in. The point here is about the difference between being alienated from God or walking with God. Even as a Christian, you're now walking with him, but you can start acting as if you're alienated from him. We can be functional atheists. 
living our week from Sunday to Sunday as if God's not really in the picture. On Sunday, yeah, I'm a Christian. You could actually be saved, but living like that, living under the law during the week and under grace on Sunday morning, you can do that. That's, what they, that's where this struggle comes in. That's where this fight against the flesh comes in. The point here is this. No Christian lives in continual defeat. The Christian life enables us through rescue to live otherwise. The Christian life is not about living in continual defeat, but no Christian experiences total victory over sin either. Because to pretend otherwise is papering over the cracks, putting on a mask. That's not, that's not what it means to walk on, walk on this earth until we're taken to glory. The victory is not found, however, in our attempts at perfection, but in Jesus's. It comes to our conqueror. Time and time and time again, it's about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So let's read on. Paul takes us from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Finishes with our conqueror. He says, So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So then, I must, and he describes the picture again, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In a war, unless compromise is found, there will always inevitably be a conqueror. And Jesus is never going to make peace with Satan and sin. There's no negotiation going on here. That is a metaphysical, cosmological, philosophical impossibility. It ain't going to happen, in other words. It's not going to happen. He is utterly perfect and he does not compromise when it comes to Satan and sin. So the question is, how does this war within end? Well, the Bible makes it quite clear that not only does Jesus win at the end of time, we see it in the, the amazing book of Revelation where Jesus' best friend uh, John is given a vision of what happens in the end times and he can't even put it in words. He can't even put it in Greek and we struggle to then put it in English. It's just like with these amazing pictures, like what's going on? But he's just such an amazing vision, he just struggles to do his best. And what he describes there, we'll read a, a little bit later, but we describe, we see Jesus turning up the rider on the white horse, the all-conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. We see Satan the accuser being thrown into eternal punishment. We see anyone who rejects God's goodness being given what they want. But we also see God and his people enjoying each other forever, unhindered, heaven and earth collided, happy ever after. We see the victory in the future. But also, the Bible makes it very clear that victory has already been secured. At the cross, Jesus categorically defeated sin, Satan and death, but the echoes of war still resound. Even though the victory is won, the dust is still settling. The skirmishes continue, even though the war has been decided. I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Japan, over the decades... Uh, there have been documented reports of Japanese soldiers being discovered in hideouts in the jungle. Up to 60 years. 60? How old were they? Probably could barely hold their rifle up. <laughs> but up to 60 years after World War II had ended, found them still in, hi in hideouts, still you know, unaware. Some of them were unaware that the conflict had come to a conclusion around the rest of the planet. 
But there have also been some of those soldiers who have heard the news, knew they've been defeated, but they still refuse to surrender, fighting on for decades while the dust of war itself settled. The victory had been secured by the conquerors, by the conquering side, but those defeated refused to back down for decades. It's the same here in the Bible, we see it. Jesus has won, believe it, on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. Jesus has won, but the devil and his minions refuse to go down without a fight, refuse to accept defeat. That's what's happening. It's not that Jesus hasn't won, which is why it's still going on. These are the final skirmishes. The war has been decided. But while the victory is secure, not just in the future, but in our past as well, past, present and future, the victory is secured, the enemy just still resists the good news and we can get caught in the crossfire, as we've been seeing this week leading up to New Day, for example and in our own personal lives, in our private thoughts, and so on. But like that conflict within us, the tussle, will only continue if we try to fight it alone. That's the difference. So I'm sure many of us recognise this struggle within. It can be constant. It can feel like a barrage sometimes. It can be occasional. But please be encouraged. It does not have to stay that way. And you don't have to return to that. Sometimes it happens. But there is an answer every single time. There is a way out. The answer is not fighting alone. The answer is not surrendering to sin and giving up. It's about surrendering to God's kind and open arms and relying on his help to overcome. I just want to tell a story just to help explain it before we finish. In, uh, this was on the news. This was um, only a few years ago. You might, might remember it. On, in August um, 2015, a terrorist opened fire on a train from Amsterdam to Paris. I don't know if you remember this. Um, there were over 500 passengers on this train. And he was armed to the teeth. He had a Kalashnikov rifle, he had a handgun, he had razor blades, standing knife. On that train were three US tourists. Two of them were military. And they were just on holiday, enjoying themselves. And one of them, this young lad called Alec, he heard the first gunshot. He heard the break of glass. He heard the, the gun being cocked for another round and he knew he had, there was a threat in their midst and he had to deal with it. He could not sit back. His friend Spencer, another member of the military, was, um, was asleep. So Alec immediately, having heard this, he sensed the threat, knew he could not ignore it and it needed to be dealt with, needed to be taken down. He said to Spencer, wake up, we've got to go. And Spencer immediately leapt up and helped Alec. The interesting thing is, Spencer got there first. Alec asked for help. Spencer got there first. Together they tackled this terrorist, took him down, and Spencer himself got cut several times by the standing knife, nearly lost his thumb. Lots of blood everywhere. But together, they and then their third friend came and joined them, and then a fourth, a British tourist, came and joined them as well, and together they, they, they held the adver adversary down until the authorities were able to come and take over. As a result, out of those 500 people on that train, two people were injured, nobody died. It's quite a remarkable story. It's been turned into a Clint Eastwood film starring those three Americans as themselves. Apparently it's not very good because they're not very good at acting, <laughs> even as themselves. I'll have to watch it sometime. But it's, quite, it's become quite a famous story. There's an element of that that I love that is so appropriate to hear because think about this. Alec had three choices. When he heard the cock of the gun and he sensed the threat in their midst, he could have done nothing, hidden under the chair, hope he'll get away with it, hope he'll come out unharmed. 
but the gunman would have won. That was the first option. Second option, he could have gone it alone. While brave, but also foolish, attempted to take down the adversary on his own in their midst. It would have been foolish, he would have come a cropper. And in fact, he says, if my friends hadn't helped me, I would be dead. And actually, as a result then, others' lives would be at risk as well. There's a ripple effect to his foolishness. He could have gone alone, but it would have been foolish. Thirdly, he did the right thing. He asked for the right equipped help. And his friend, I've written a friend in my notes with a capital F. His friend not only came to his aid, but got there first. Tackled the enemy, bled in the process, and the threat was resolved. The point here, I hope it's obvious, when the devil is on the prowl, when we sense temptation to sin getting louder in our midst, we recognize the threat in our midst. We have three options, three choices. We can give in, we can accept defeat, this is easier to. Or we can go it alone, which we often try. We can rely on the old ways of do's and don'ts and doing it in our own strength. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for discipline, for accountability, and so there is a place for that. But that's not the answer. It's always the cross that's the answer. Accountability, discipline, etc., etc., helps. Sometimes we can step away in our own strength. We can resist. We can leave things well alone from time to time. That's not dealing with the strong man at the root of it all. So we can give in, we can go alone, or we can call on the one who is equipped to deal with this threat himself. The one who can shout down the enemy and win the day. The one who secured that victory 2,000 years ago by getting there first and bleeding in the process. That's what Jesus has done for us. So much so, he actually gave his life as a result. So I mentioned Revelation earlier. Just turn to Revelation chapter 12 to end. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Revelation 12.10 And John said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, there he is, the threat in the mist, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by what? By the blood of the Lamb. They haven't conquered him by self-will, by accountability amongst brothers or sisters, by good discipline, by internet firewalls, whatever it might be, they haven't defeated him by that. They've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's living your faith out loud. I belong to Jesus now. Even saying out loud. Satan can't read your thoughts. You know that? He's not omniscient like God is. Only God can do that. Holy Spirit can read your thoughts. Satan can't. So say it out loud. Shut yourself in the bathroom if you don't want to be seen in front of people talking to yourself. But just say, get behind me, Satan, in Jesus' name. He backs down. He can't, he can't stand up to the name of Jesus. Just whisper under your breath when you're walking on the street. Satan, in Jesus' name, back off. Just do it out loud. Works. It's the word of the testimony, relying on the blood of the Lamb. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Every time we call on Jesus and try, not try to go it alone, we stand in his victory. And his victory is secure. His victory is decided in the future, in the present, and already in the past. It's decided every single time. We're going to discover more of what Paul then leads us into, this glories of chapter 8 over the next few weeks. Next time I'll be explaining 
a little bit more about what we can do in response in two weeks' time. But in the, in the meantime, just a reminder of where we've been through chapters 6 and 7. We have died to sin and Satan. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you do not belong to sin. You do not belong to Satan anymore. You belong to Jesus. You are someone else's now. So it's not just acting as if you're alive to Jesus. It's acting because you are. You've been brought into new life. You've been rescued by a new loving master who we get to serve, not enslaved by. We're now betrothed to him and learning this new life in the spirit. The battle of the flesh will continue all the time we breathe on this planet. Every time we have breath. But every time we call on Jesus, his Holy Spirit storms in, gets there first to help us win the fight. He is the victor, not us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who is big enough, bold enough, powerful enough to defeat sin, Satan, death on our behalf so we don't have to. We can just stand in your victory that you've already given us. Lord, help us to remember this. So often we try and go it alone. So often sometimes we just give up because it's easier. But you say, no. Step into my victory. Step into what I secured on the cross, defeating sin and death, rising from the grave to secure it once and for all. And now you sit at the right hand of the throne of God. You are seated because your work is done. And now you intercede for us. Lord, you have, if we are yours, you have placed Holy Spirit in us. We thank you that he's readily available. He can't get any closer than that. He's in us. He's readily available, stirring, stirring in us, giving us the strength, the ability to say no because we're standing in your strength and not ours. I think just while we've got our eyes shut, if this resonates with you, if you need 